why do you think you got to succeed every time? You can't succeed every time and stuff. And, and the idea of prototyping, running these little experiments in the world, like what would it be like if I tried this? What would it be like if I tried that? And making them small steps and accessible steps is when they quote fail, when I have, I get a hold of somebody and I talk to them and I find out, oh man, that's really, a, that's way more boring or way more, you know, so I'm not interested in that idea anymore. Is that a failure because you asked a question and you got a negative answer back? No, it's a success because now you learned I don't have to investigate that path. That path is not my path. Now, you need a little bit of self-discernment. You need to kind of know yourself a little. But, you know, these little experiments are also experiments in learning how to listen to see if this idea this other person has, you know, might work for me or might not work for me. Or maybe I'm neutral and I need more, I need more prototypes before I just pick a direction. Do you feel stuck? Are you disengaged at work? Well, join the approximately 68% of Americans who say yes to these questions. We all want a life of meaning and impact, but how? How can you do that when you're stuck in your job, you're busy with life, you're overwhelmed with everything going on? Most people spend more time at work than anywhere else, so it's not surprising that you'll want to find fulfillment and purpose there at work. Well, now there's a plan to help you get unstuck and find happiness at work. New York Times bestselling author and Stanford design professor Bill Burnett shares this plan in today's episode of Success Through Failure. When I was a Division I All-American athlete, I was hyper-focused and I was able to take consistent action that allowed me to be one of the best in the country at what I did. Well, for years after I was done competing, I just struggled to stay focused on my goals day in and day out. I was easily distracted, so I wasn't able to stay consistent, the kind of consistency that you need to have to achieve goals that are meaningful to you. It was discouraging for me. I felt like I was just slipping kind of into mediocrity. Then after interviewing some of the highest performers in the world, Olympians, CEOs, billionaires, best-selling authors, I discovered how they do it. I discovered 18 powerful and sometimes weird tactics that they use to stay focused at work, focused on the right things while also living a balanced life. And if you start using probably just three of these today, you're going to get more done in the next eight hours. I promise. This is not tomorrow, not next week. These will work today. I guarantee it. It's like magic, but they're real world solutions to it. People like you and me want the ability to stay focused, avoid distraction and be consistent. I use at least four of them every day and have used all of them at some point. And now I'm able to stay focused while I'm at work and get probably 50 to hundred percent more done each day. I'm more present when I'm home with my wife and four kids. And the result is I have a stronger relationship with my family and I'm still able to achieve incredible goals like being selected to give a TEDx talk at one of the biggest TED events in the world, like launching a podcast and talking to A-list guests and running a half marathon, all of this while having a full-time job that includes frequent travel, working nights and weekends and all that good stuff. So you're going to find solutions on this list that are going to surprise you. Grab your copy of the 18 Tactics to Staying Focused at Work. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash focus. That's jimharshawjr.com slash focus. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr., and today I bring you Bill Burnett. 
Bill is the co-author of the book, Designing Your Life, along with Dave Evans, his co-author and also a Stanford design professor. This was a New York Times number one best-selling book, and now they've written another book called Designing Your Work Life, How to Thrive and Change and Find Happiness at Work. Designing Your Work Life really teaches readers how to create the job that they want without necessarily leaving the job that they already have. Although that is an option. This is a process. This is a framework that they take us through in teaching us how to design that life, design the work life that we want. And I encourage you to listen to the whole way to the end of this episode because he shares a sort of synopsis and a summary or a conclusion at the end of this that really encapsulates everything that he's talking about. There's some really great things in here. If you're not completely satisfied with the work that you do right now, this is the episode for you. Check it out. If you want to listen to the first interview with them, there's some absolutely golden nuggets out of that episode that I highly, highly recommend that episode. It's way back in episode 124, 124. It's a great episode. He really dives deep into some of the concepts that get discussed in this episode as well. One of them is prototyping, which is a design term, but really prototyping is about creating new experiences, prototype experiences. It's not about going all in and saying, okay, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to start this business or I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to change careers. It's about creating prototype experiences, which might be conversations with somebody or having a coffee with somebody who's doing that thing that you want to do, or maybe shadowing them or reading a book about it or doing some learning around some other experience. Anyway, that's a great episode as well, but let me stop talking and let's get into this episode with Bill Burnett. As a design professor, how did you come to write a couple of books, uh, best-selling books on life design and work design? Well, you know, it, it always starts with somebody's a need, right? I mean, designers, you know, designers like me, design thinking or, or human-centered designers, we always say don't start with the problem, start with people. And so I, I, you know, I've had a couple thousand students in my career at Stanford and they're all, and they, and, you know, they right around, you know, spring quarter, we have lots of office hours about, you know, what's going to be like to graduate and what's the world going to be like? And is it going to suck? Everybody tells me jobs suck. Um, and in fact, 68% of the people in America say they're disengaged from their jobs. So that's not so, that's not so, uh, it's probably kind of true. Anyway, I was just talking to students and then, uh, Dave and I got together and we had done some business before and we said, and he said, you know, I'm doing a class over at Berkeley on, um, how to find a career. And I said, well, you know, if we did that here, we'd have to do it around design. And he said, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's try that. And so we, we built that class and then we built on a couple more classes and then it just kind of took off. But, you know, the you know, designers have evolved a way of inventing stuff that's never been seen before, right? The iPhone, the iPad, you know, the very first, I was at, when I was at Apple, we did the very first laptops. So how do you invent something new to the world? Something that you, know, you can't get any data because it exists in a future that doesn't, hasn't happened yet. And then all of a sudden, you know, bam, there's this thing called an iPhone. And actually, I have my very first one, the iPhone, the iPhone 1. They didn't call it that, of course, but the 1. And it's actually fairly primitive when you when you see it, but it was revolutionary, right? It was it was a computer plus your plus your iPod plus you know your email plus your browser plus everything in this one thing, and then and the combination of things was much more than simply you know the addition of one plus one plus one plus one, right? It became this huge magnifier, 
and in some cases maybe you know an attention you know deficit you know provoking device but um so so designers come up with a way to come up with new new to the world things and they do it by prototyping by building you say we build our way forward because you can't analyze it because there's no data and uh if you're looking for something brand new you, you need that process so what could be more brand new than my future or how to find my next job or how to figure out if, you know, what I really want to do. Um, you know, one of the, one of the bad pieces of advice that people often get is follow your passion. It's one of our dysfunctional beliefs in the first place. We got a bunch more in the second, but you know, I mean, if you, if you always knew you wanted to be a doctor, great, go be a doctor and see if it works out. By the way, most of the people who come to my workshops who want to change something in their life are doctors or lawyers because they, they went into it without really thinking about what it was really going to be like. And, you know, the doctors thought they were going to cure people and they spent all their time filling out insurance forms. And the lawyers thought they were going to argue for truth and justice and they ended up writing, you know, contracts for, you know, large companies like Exxon to, you know, destroy the planet. So, you know, be careful what you, what you're passionate about, do a little research, but most people don't have a passion. So this idea that you need to know in advance what you want, it just isn't true. It's not the way the world works. So, we just saw this huge need of people kind of struggling with bad ideas, bad tools, or no tools to try to figure out their careers. And we started talking to people in their, in their mid-careers, you know, 30-something, 40-something, and we were seeing a lot of people unhappy. And so the first book was about, you know, kind of life design, applying design thinking to your life. And the second book is really zooms in on, all right, well, this world of work where we spend 40 or 50 years, sometimes more hours a week. You know, a couple hundred thousand hours in your lifetime spent doing something. Wouldn't it be great if it were enjoyable? Wouldn't it be great if it felt like it was sort of part of your mission or your goal in life? Or, or, or wouldn't it be great if you just you knew what work was about and then you had this life with a job in it and it was and, and it all fit? It was coherent. You know, it's a modern idea that your job is going to you know, make you happy or make you, you know, fulfill some sort of inner you know, goal or mission. I don't know about you. My, my grandparents came over from Germany. My grandfather got the family out of Germany in 1933 because they had just elected a new chancellor, elected by a popular vote, a guy named Adolf Hitler. And he didn't think that was going to go so well. He was able to get the family out of, out of uh, Germany and here. But he, you know, he landed with sixth grade education, speaking hardly any English, took any job. He, he worked at the sewage plant, literally shoveling sewage from one tank to another you know, for 50 cents a day. And his why, his mission was put a roof over our head, get us out of an unsafe place, put us someplace where we could, you know, where where he could provide a safe place for the family and that his kids could then go on to things like education, college and stuff. And, you know, my dad went to San Jose State, great state school here down in California, and his son went to Stanford and my daughter's getting a PhD in immunology at Berkeley. So in just, you know, three, four generations, we went from, you know, Germany and poverty to, you know, quote, the American dream. So, but his, his goal was, you know, I mean, it's always life with a job in it, right? Start with life then think about what, how, how does the job support that life? And in his case, it was just, you know, safety, security, and a roof over our head and get the kids off to school. Perfectly legitimate way to work, right? So is this dissatisfaction that you talk about, the 68% of Americans who are dissatisfied with their work, is this a new thing in our culture and society? Has it always been there? 
You know, as far as I can tell, and Gallup does that survey, and they do an international survey, the first world, highly technological you know, society that has the lowest job engagement is Japan. 93% of Japanese hate their job. So, and, and you know, this, this, another way of looking at this, in companies, they survey, you know, engagement. They want employee engagement because there's lots of evidence that engaged employees are more creative, they're more productive, they make a better work, workplace. It's never been much more than 30%, 30, 35%, and has declined in some years and gone up in some years. But if you think about it, only a third of the people are coming to work and, and engaged in, in the activities they do in the workplace. So you know, lots, of, lots of companies are working hard in this engagement problem because if you can unleash the creativity and the, and the engagement of people, they just do a better job. And you know, and you and and you have a happier workplace, which is you know ultimately a, a pretty good goal. So you know, everybody struggled with it. And it's funny, I've always loved my jobs. I've always had jobs I really liked. I mean, even after I, you know, I, I, at some point I might have outlived the job or outgrown the opportunities. Or you know, I left Apple because there was kind of nothing else that I wanted to do there, and I ended up doing my own my own, my own consulting firm. But it was always interesting. So I'm I'm really David, I really want to help the people who feel like they don't like their job and there's nothing they can do about it. I think that the real thing is this notion that you're not in charge of making yourself happy. And that's just not true. All of all of the psychology, and you know, our stuff is based on design thinking and the positive psychologists like Martin Seligman and Haley Csikszentmihalyi and Payne Goldman, who wrote the book Emotional Intelligence. You have a lot more agency than you think. And, and a lot of the strategies in our book, you don't even need to ask your boss to do. It's just the way you approach, the way you reframe and approach your work is going is to have a lot to do with how you report your satisfaction. And, and what you're looking for is at the end of every week to say, hey, that week was a little better than the last one. And I'm making progress on the goals that I've set for myself. Well, you mentioned dysfunctional beliefs and you mentioned reframing. What do you mean by dysfunctional belief? And maybe you can give us an example or two. Um, and I think the, you already mentioned one, which is, you know, I'm dissatisfied with my job and there's nothing I can do about it. So this concept of dysfunctional beliefs, these are, we don't even see them as dysfunctional beliefs. They're just, as far as most people think, they're just, it's just a fact in, in their mind. Uh, and, and then this idea of reframing. Can you talk about those? Sure. The reframing thing is the, sort of the power tool in design, right? It's, you know, you know, we always say in design, there's, you know, there's, there's problem finding and problem solving, and that leads to innovation. Find a good problem, solve it well, you got an innovation. And the reframing is all about finding a better problem. And it's coupled with dysfunctional beliefs. So, you know, follow your passion. Well, if I'm one of the eight out of 10 people who don't have one, I, I, but I, I think everybody else has one. Now I'm stuck, right? And dysfunctional beliefs either keep you stuck or you're believing something that isn't actually true. For my, for my, my students, they think, oh, God, you know, if I, if I pick the wrong major, I'll never get a job. Completely dysfunctional belief. Eight out of, uh, ten years out of school, less than 20% of, of college graduates are doing anything that had anything to do with what they majored in in college. Majors are about organizing your college experience. They have nothing to do primarily with organizing your life and work experiences. They, they may influence the first job. I was an environmental science major, so I'm, I'm another example. Exactly. exactly. And so uh, another a dysfunctional belief we talk about in, in, in the book here is um, 
money versus meaning. Well, I want to do something meaningful, but you know, the meaningful jobs and nonprofits and stuff, that doesn't pay very well. So I got, if I got to go for the money, somehow or other, I got to sell out my soul. And it's like, no, no. I mean, every time you make something a, a dichotomy like that, like money versus meaning or work, work life balance, I get more work, I get less life, right? Got more money, got less meaning. It's not true. It's not the way the world works. And the reframe for that is it's not two things, it's three. First of all, never make anything a binary decision because your brain automatically makes that a zero-sum game. The, the psychologist, neurologist who studied the brain would say, A, B decisions are almost always um, suboptimal. So just add one more thing. Like That's why we do three odyssey plans. And we do, you know, when we do brainstorming, we have more than three ideas. So the, the, the reframe is, okay, what we're really talking about is, you know, I, people ask you, well, you know, what do you make? And then what they normally mean is, what do you, how much money do you make? But when we say make, we, we say, okay, everybody's a maker in this maker movement and make, make the world, right? And you make three things in the, in the, in the, the commercial economy. When you're in the work economy, you make money. That's how you get, that's how you score. You know, I make money for this job. In the um, nonprofit or the impact economy, you're making, what you're going for is, you know, is impact. It's not how much money does my nonprofit raise. It's how many kids are in that after-school program and learning to read and, you know, impacting their their you know, velocity in education. And then when we do the big exercise from the first book, the Odyssey plans, and people do three completely different plans for their life, inevitably, 100% of the time in thousands of plans, people want a little more creativity in their lives. They'd like to have more creativity. They may not say, say I'm a creative person, but be like, wouldn't it be better if there's more creativity in my life? A little something that was was more fun. And so we went and talked to the, you know, the the labeled creatives, the artists, the writers, the dancers, the painters, the singers, you know, people who do creativity for a living. And we said, how do you get paid? And they go, well, I get paid in expression. If I, if I get a chance to, you know, recite my poem at open mic night, if I get a chance to play my song, if I get a chance to paint my painting, I'm not doing it for money. I don't care. About, I mean, I, I, it'd be nice if somebody paid me, but I'm doing it for the, the joy of expression. So now you have, you know, um, money, impact, and expression are the three three levels on your maker mix. And it's like mixing a song. I can have more money. I can have more, more uh, expression. I can have more impact. And you, you got three sliders. And you control how much attention you pay to making money, making an impact and making expression. My example is, you know, I was working at a nice uh, consulting firm, about 40 people. We were doing really cool engineering projects and we were working for big companies like Intel and little tiny startups in the Valley. And it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, when you're a consultant, you're working on other people's ideas. So it's not your expression, it's their expression. Impact, you know, it depends on the product. You know, we don't, we didn't control the impact of how the product actually got in the world. And so mostly I'd say that job was intellectually interesting, but mostly for money. And then in 2006, when David Kelly called me up and said, hey, I'm starting to de-school and I need some help. Would you have you ever thought about coming in and working full time? We'll invent this job called executive director. Uh, I said, great. He said, yeah, it pays about you know half of what you're making. Right now. I said, it was a little bit less than half. <laughs> but I took it because my idea was, Wow, look at how much impact. I mean, if I work on this job for 10 years and we put a thousand designers in the world, trained in human-centered design, design thinking, and they're going out to work on the hard problems, energy, you know, health, um, climate, you know, I can that's a much bigger impact than just doing consulting projects for companies, right? 
So I traded, I dialed down the money thing, pushed the impact thing up. I've never, best job I've ever had. Super, super good job. But I, I could articulate why, right? What, where in my mix was I changing? You know, like when you're mixing, when you're making a song, you want more, you know, a lot more bass if it's a, if it's, you know, it's a rap song or something, a lot more treble if it's a, if it's a classical, you know, uh, violin concerto. So you got to have the right mix for the right time in your life. Um, and that blows up the whole dysfunctional belief of I got to trade one for the other. No, it's three things, at least three things. And if you're, uh, if you assess where you're at and then decide what you want to change, it's, it's a lot easier to make really specific, small changes, prototype your way forward to get to a mix that really feels like the right mix for you. And, you know, I, everybody is concerned about money. And certainly in this pandemic, if you have lost your job or you were a small business person, you owned a restaurant, you owned a, you know, a travel agency, whatever, and, and that whole business has evaporated. Money is, of course, a huge issue, and, and I'm not I'm not suggesting that money is not important. But all the research shows is that when you have enough, and enough is less than most people think. Enough is, you know, I'm paying the bills, um, I'm putting some money away for the kids' college education, and we're fine. You know, we're, I mean, literally, we're, we're okay. There's a, there's a little bit of surplus, and we're okay. The all the all all of the research, and there's tons and tons. There's 20, 30 years of research in this. The incremental amount of money above that range makes you happy for a little while, about six months, and then you stabilize again and you're neither more or less happy than before, although you have more money. And typically with them, what people do is they up their need. And so now they're still right at that little margin and getting a lot more money. The hedonic treadmill, right? doesn't make anybody happy. It's not, it, it, I, most of the people who come to my workshops and really want to change something in their lives are very successful and have making lots of money. And they hate their lives because somewhere along the way, they lost track of what this is all about. And money's, money's just one of the three things. Yeah, this is the hedonic treadmill, which you talk about. Yeah, they're on a hedonic treadmill. They get a little more. Yeah, you talk about the hedonic treadmill in the book. And yeah, and this is the, the term psychologists use to define the endless seeking of more. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. So the book, the, the, the second book is really about how do you make work work for you? How, what are the, what are ways to redesign your job without even, you know, necessarily engaging your boss to, to try to find more uh, engagement, more impact, more expression, and uh, just let people know that they have way more agency than they think they do. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. You talk about cultivating the good enough for now attitude. Yeah. Why is that helpful, helpful whenever we're trying to not settle? We're maybe dissatisfied in our jobs. And how does this concept of good enough for now help us? So... If you look at the, the sort of science, the psychology of behavior change, how do people start a new positive behavior, you know, eating better? Or how do people end a negative behavior, smoking, you know, uh, not working out, something like that? The way people fail is they try to, they try to do too much too fast. Our book is, sells really well in January because that's what the publishers call the 
new new year, new you season. Everybody's going to get their diet book, their self-help book. But it's January and you say, I'm going to run a marathon this year. And I go, hey, listen, hand me your phone. Uh, I, I can't help but notice that uh, you're not even doing 5,000 steps a day. <laughs> Between here and a marathon, you know, that's, that's a long distance. Let's set some smaller goals. We can have marathon in the back of our mind, but how about we set a goal of 10,000 steps for three weeks? Accomplish that goal. Let's set up a bigger goal. You know, we'll go a little bit more, a little bit more. It's really well documented that the way you make significant big changes in your life is paradoxically making small changes, not big ones. The small ones add up. And the small ones add up because they're sustainable. Pretty soon, 10,000 steps a day, it's no big deal. You're not even thinking about it. Of course, you're going to walk. You know, I'm going to walk from the train to my office if the train ever starts happening again and I'm allowed to go to my office instead of instead of taking the shuttle. Because, you know, that gives me 6,000 steps right there. Boom. Done. So the, the good enough for now is how do we make small appropriate changes? How do we prototype our way forward, build our way forward, and use those small changes to reinforce our sense of self-efficacy? Uh, we have the power to change. I went from 5,000 to 10,000 steps. Awesome. Um, and, and then, you know, like, let's just maybe rather than setting goals that are exhausting, because I think a lot of the times, you know, particularly when we're doing New Year's resolutions and stuff, we set these big goals and to actually get there is, is, is exhausting. It's a lot, it's tiring, right? It's, it takes a lot of energy. And by the way, the, the stats are pretty clear that 90% of New Year's resolutions are abandoned by the end of March. So, so that, you know, we know that method doesn't work, right? So let's do the method that we, that we have some evidence that it works. Uh, by the way, uh, just a little shout out to a colleague who wrote a book called Tiny Habits. He's uh, another, another uh, professor at Stanford, B.J. Fogg, and he's documented a whole sort of methodology for taking small steps to make big changes. And so, you know, set the bar low is our methodology. Set the bar low and clear it and do that over and over again. That builds your confidence with David Kelly culture, creative confidence. It builds what psychologists call self-efficacy, the belief that you can be in charge of your life and you can make changes. And, uh, and it follows the science, you know, so that you don't, you don't, don't end up trying some, here, here's the thing. A lot, a lot of books are out there about like, be your best, most extraordinary, fantastic self. Okay, fine. But you read the book, you try to do it. Six months later, you're back where you started, except now you feel like, oh, wow, I bet everybody else could do that. And I, I'm the only person who read this book and can't make it work. And so you feel you, you actually aren't where you started. You're, you, you feel worse because you failed to execute whatever yeah. the book said. We didn't want to be that book. We wanted the book, we wanted to be the book that was hopeful. Like try a couple of little things. Hey, that worked. Or, you know, on the subject of failure, you know, design, if you want to innovate, you have to fail. I mean, you know, people talk about Silicon Valley being this model of innovation, venture capitalists, startups, and all this stuff. Venture capitalists know that nine out of 10 of their investments will not return the invested dollars. They know that they're going to fail eight or nine times out of 10. And yet they're considered the geniuses of innovation because that one or two successes is Apple, Facebook, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, you know, giant biotech companies, giant, you know, medical device companies. All those companies came from this rapid experimentation, lots and lots of, lots and lots of shots on goal and one or two successes. So if that's the model that people are willing to commit billions of dollars to, 
why do you think you got to succeed every time? You can't succeed every time. And, and the idea of prototyping, running these little experiments in the world, like what would it be like if I tried this? What would it be like if I tried that? And making them small steps and accessible steps is when they, quote, fail, when I have I get a hold of somebody and I talk to them and I find out, oh, man, that's really a, that's way more boring or way more, you know, I'm so not interested in that idea anymore. Is that a failure because you asked a question and you got a negative answer back? No, it's a success because now you learned, I don't have to investigate that path. That path is not my path. Now, you need a little bit of self-discernment. You need to kind of know yourself a little. But, you know, these little experiments are also experiments in learning how to listen to see if this idea this other person has, you know, might work for me or might not work for me. Or maybe I'm neutral and I need more I need more prototypes before I just pick a direction. So you're saying this concept of work design and life design requires failure. It requires trying things and expecting, you know what, some of this is going to fail. Sometimes I'm going to fail. Sometimes I'm going to be embarrassed. Something sometimes things aren't going to work out. And that is information of, for me. Of course. It's all information. It's all learning. And um, you know, it's and that's why you know, and so that's why we say take small steps because, first of all, it's scary to try any change, right? We acknowledge that it's just scary. The reason most people stay in jobs they don't like, and the reason most people end up in you know situations that they don't like, and they're they're kind of stuck and they're static is it's scarier to try something new than to just deal with the thing you got that's not very good. Like we always say, the first step in design thinking is empathy, but the first step in life design is accept. You, and Dave would say, my buddy Dave, my co-author would say, you can't solve a problem you're not willing to have, right? It, until you decide, I want to work on this, nothing's going to happen, and, and then you're going to try some prototypes and things and see what goes. But but you got to make a decision. I want to make something. I want to change something. And a lot of people are stuck in a place where they don't like what they don't like their life. But it's not, I mean, it's miserable, but it's not, you know, horrible, toxic, whatever. But but it's safer to have the problem than to try to change the problem. And that's just a normal human thing, right? It's not like I like my problem, but, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather just sit here and complain than actually take some action and see if I could make it better. And it's because it's, it's scary. So, again, you know, set the bar low. Try small things. Build your confidence up. It's all learning, even a prototype that, quote, fails, like that was a complete disaster and I was really embarrassed and I couldn't think of any good questions to ask. What did you, you know, then think, come back, reflect on that. What did you learn? It's all, it's all about, I mean, you know, we've got whatever we got, 70, 80, 90, my, my young students graduating, you know, starting or starting college right now, maybe the first generation to live to a healthy 100 on average. So I tell them, look, you're going to work for 70 years. So just chill out. Just enjoy college because, you know, like, don't worry. There's going to there's a lot more, a lot more life ahead of you. But we're all trying to maximize some happiness, some meaning, some purpose, right? And, and the research says, well, that comes from relationships. That comes from building strong family and, and community and other relationships. And boy, do we need more of that now, right? Talking about a you know a divided nation, there are families that can't even talk to each other because they've decided politics defines you know relationships. It's ridiculous. Uh, you know, I, I spent the summer in uh, most of the summer in Ohio. We talked about going different places. You went to some really cool places. I went to Cleveland, Ohio, which was fine. It's where my wife's family is. 
And I hung out with lots of people who, you know, probably voted differently than I did in this election. They're all nice people, kind to their children and to their, their pets. They live in houses that they take good care of. Um, they commute, you know, they participate in their community and their churches or their community things. They just have a different opinion about, you know, what, what the balance of, of, you know, government versus, um, uh, personal action is, I guess. We can all live together. We can, we can, we can be a community. You know, I don't, I don't have to enjoy your politics to enjoy, you know, picking up a guitar and singing with you. So that, if that's what we're after. We got to reorganize around what really matters. And once you have enough, it's not money. And once, once you realize you have the, the you have more agency than you think to make your job better, uh, you know, that's the, you know, it's good enough. I, I got a situation. It's good enough for now. I mean, in this global pandemic, if you're still working and you've got a job, awesome. You're in the 50% of the world that is still functioning. You know, so great. If you don't have that, then then you need different strategies for getting back into a you know a different probably a different career because a lot of the industries that have been hard hit by this aren't going to come back. People say now for two, three, four years. So you can't just you can't wait. You're not in the waiting room. You know, waiting for those things to come back. You're in this neutral zone where you know lots of things are happening and and you got to get prepared for you know for the next wave. So we're just trying to we're just trying to get people you know. Uh, some tools and a little bit of hope that they have the ability to make things better. You talk about this concept of radical collaboration, and I love this concept, this idea. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, you know, it's a, it's the simplest way to say it is like, if, if I could figure out everything I need to do in my life, just by sitting here and thinking really hard in my head and then going out and doing it, that'd be awesome. But I've tried that and it doesn't work. I'm still stuck. So the answer is in the world. And I run prototypes. I run these little experiments to try things in the world. And I run them with other people. And, and radical collaboration on a design team means I need lots of different kinds of skills. I need lots of different voices. Nowadays, it's including that we, you know, if we're going to be working across all the communities, we want to include everybody. I want, I, I need representation from everyone on my design team. It can't just be a bunch of, you know, white men. It's, I need, well, I need women. I need people of color. I need, I need folks who have different experiences. But it's also that when I go out in the world to try something, I have to try it with people. And this is where, yeah, go, you know, go talk to your uncle who, who's in a, in a red state if you're in a blue state or a blue state if you're in a red state. Talk to people that have different ideas and be, you know, have empathy. You know, we're out in the world with empathy, trying to discover what does the world need? What does the world need right now that I might be able to participate in or what does the world think about this idea I have for what I want to do next? Maybe I'm, maybe I want to start a blog. I've heard all about all these blog things. I've talked to my good friends, you know, who are bloggers like you. And I've said, Hey, this is kind of interesting. It's a way of, it's a way of expression, right? It's a way of expression and impact might even create some money. But at the beginning, it's really just about, I think I have a point of view. I'd like to get something out there around failure, right? success through failure. And uh, I wonder if people would be interested in that. And you can start that with, you know, your laptop, your your iPhone, and, uh, you know, post your first thing in, you know, a week. So radical collaboration means, to me, means that um, all the good ideas are not in my head, that we'll co-create ideas by working together. And the more different we are, 
the more the chance that we'll mix up something that's never happened before. And that's where innovation comes from in products and services. And that's where that new idea in your life comes from. And it's just being open to the possibility that there's something out there that you haven't even thought of that's cooler than your idea, (laughs) right? I mean, how many times have you been standing in a line at a Starbucks or something and gotten into a conversation with somebody and it turned into a lead up for a job or an interesting opportunity to join a different group or something? It's like just being open in the world to the possibility that there are things happening that you are unaware of that if you could participate in them, wow, things would be different. There's so many, and that's such a bigger set of possibilities than just sitting all by yourself trying to figure stuff out. You got to do some of that. You have to do some reflection. And trying to trying to figure some of this out on our own is one part of it. And radical collaboration is another part. But this whole thing, this designing your life, this getting to your next level, whatever that next level is, even if it's just a next level of understanding of what makes you tick and what you enjoy, or maybe what you love about your job right now that um, can help you be a little bit more satisfied, or maybe it's the next career. But it takes action. It doesn't happen by just listening to a podcast episode, shaking your head a few times and going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, that sounds great. That sounds like a good idea. And then flipping on to the next podcast episode and moving on with your life. You actually have to stop and do the work. And one of the things that you talk about in your first book, and it comes up again in the second book, is the work view, life view exercises. I think they're really foundational. Can you talk about those? Yeah. And, and that's, a, you know, you, you said, you know, sometimes you just, you know, think by yourself and sometimes you're out in the world. Like, well, the thing about yourself part is actually pretty important. Like I say, it's kind of a foundation because if you get good at prototyping, if you get good at, you know, radical collaboration and, and going out in the world and, and have unbiased actions and other mindset, lots of stuff's going to happen. And you're going to have to decide, you're going to have to make some decisions like, well, is this good or bad? Do I want to go left or right? Do I want to go forward or pull back a little? In order to make those decisions and feel like you're you're doing something that's uh, you know like like you're actually moving in, in a consistent direction, you do need to know yourself. And and the way we've organized that is, well, we're talk, we're trying to optimize work, so let's write 250 to 500 words on our theory of work, our work view, not a job description, but like why do we work? I mean, you know, hey, if we had a if we had a guaranteed income in the United States and you could live on, you know, $1,000 a month, you wouldn't need to work. But most people do. And most people want to work anyway, because it's the way of doing something valuable in the world. It's a way of, you know, interacting with colleagues. So what's your theory of work? Write that down. And then what's your life view? What is your you know work and life view? Life view is truly, you know, 250 words or a novel on why are we here? What's what's the answer to the big question? Why are we here? Is there a God or is there some kind of spiritual, you know, something in the, in the world that puts things together? Are we alone? Are we together? What is the view? What is your view on community and the individual versus the, the you know, the, the, the greater collection of, of, of individuals? And, and there's no, there's no wrong or right answer, but what we're looking for is what we call coherence. So if in my life view, I say something nice, like I think part of my life should be helping other people who aren't as fortunate as me. That's a, a wonderful, positive you know, aspect of a life view. But my work view is make as much money as possible. And, you know, and uh, if I have to climb over the backs of my colleagues, who cares? 
Now, nobody ever writes that down, but you know, if, if you had that much of a, of a disparity between those two, it wouldn't be coherent. You'd have to either say, you're just saying nice stuff to make yourself feel good, but you don't really mean it about this helping others. Or you'd have to say you've, you've exaggerated this, this idea of competition. Competition is fine, but really not at the expense of other human beings. But, but mostly what we find is that people write two, two things and we, and they come to the realization, oh, I've been putting jobs and work kind of over in this box. And I've been putting my idea of like, like what makes a good life kind of over in this box. And the boxes aren't talking to each other. And, uh, and the research shows that when you can connect the dots between who you are and what you do and what you believe, you, you experience your life as being more meaningful. So taking some time to write those and then speaking them out loud to a, to a friend, do this with a partner. They do it theirs, you do yours. And then you speak them out loud. And then you talk about now that you've heard yourself say them, because that's important. It's, it's somehow we don't really own it until we speak it out loud you know, to another person. And then we have to own it. And then we go, huh, I'm noticing there's some places where these are really connected. I'm noticing other parts that aren't, they're not maybe in opposition, but there's no connection. There's no connection between this element and this element. I wonder if I, if I rewrote it or I thought about it again, or I tried some things, I prototyped some things to see if, if, uh, cause sometimes we don't, we don't always know how we feel until we act in the world. Anyway, th- that, that turns out to be a super generative exercise brings up a lot of stuff for people. And when it is coherent, they go, okay, now I know how to judge, you know, whether this path or that path would make the most sense. It disentangles the money thing. I'm not just chasing money anymore. I'm chasing something bigger than that. It disentangles some of the other, you know, like, oh, well, you know, getting promoted is, there's a whole thing about status. I get a lot of, you know, 40-year-old lawyers in my workshops going, I hate my job. I hate my life. And I go, what happened? And they said, well, you know, I wanted to make, I wanted to get into a good law school and I did, and I got into a good law firm and then I made junior partner and then I made partner. Now I'm on the managing committee. So I got, I just kept chasing that, that status, you know, bigger office, bigger title, bigger something. I got it. And guess what? It doesn't mean anything to me. So if you can get clear on what really matters in, in your work and in your life, you, you don't go down these paths that, you know, end up as dead ends. And I encourage the listener to to actually do this work. This is, for the longtime listeners, you know what I'm about to say. This is a productive pause. And the definition of a productive pause is a short period of focused reflection around specific questions that leads to clarity of action and peace of mind. And that's what we all want is that clarity of action and peace of mind. And it comes from doing exercises like this. Absolutely. So if the listeners sitting there shaking, nodding their head saying, yes, yes, I get it. I, I want to move forward. I would number one, recommend that they buy the book, Designing Your Work Life. And I'm going to have the link in the action plan for all the listeners. Make sure to go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. I'll have the link there. You can go to Amazon. Of course, anywhere you can buy the book. It's a great book. It's a valuable read. I got a ton out of it. And this is the kind of work that I do every day. And I got so much out of this book. But Bill, can you recommend another action item, something that the listener could do in the next 24 to 48 hours to really start living a life of coherence, to really start uh, designing their work life? You know, we were once we were 
going to be on a TV show in Canada and we thought we'd have a 10 minute segment and we only had a two minute segment at the end. And they said, you got to summarize the whole thing. So we came up with this summaries and, and this is where you start. So the whole, the whole sort of learning cycle is get curious, talk to, talk to people, try stuff, tell your story. Stories tend to lead to more curiosity, which tends to more talking to people, trying stuff, trying stories. So the, the step one is take your curiosity out for a walk. We are naturally curious humans. It's one of the innate, you know, uh, sort of motivators of the human being is they have this, this weird kind of curiosity. We'll do stuff just because it's interesting to us. And sometimes it's hard to activate your curiosity if you've been in a sort of a job and it feels a little bit dead ended or you're, you're just kind of exhausted from the pandemic. I get it. But, and stop doom scrolling through, you know, uh, Trump tweets and all that stuff. That's none of that's productive. There's got to be something you're curious about. I don't care if it's, you know, you're curious about stamp collecting or you're curious about, you know, nuclear arms treaties. There's something you can find you're curious about. And nowadays there is the possibility of of gathering lots of information from your screen, you know, getting on the internet in a productive way because there's tons of stuff out there. So start with, you know, find some, pick anything. I don't care if it's, you know, uh, 17th century French poetry or learning how to macrame. You know, I, I've noticed macrame and decoupage are coming back in the pandemic. Two old, like, you know, craft things from, this, from the 70s and 80s. There was macrame hangings in every fern bar in the 80s, I think. Find something you're curious about. Go spend spend an hour. Just spend an hour and learn about it. And then, and then check in with yourself. Like, am I, is my body tingling? Am I curious about learning more? Or is this kind of like, eh, whatever, it's not as interesting as, as I thought. Learn to identify that feeling. Learn to identify the feeling of curiosity. Where does it come from? And then learn to identify the feeling. That, and it's a gut feeling. It's in your body. It's not in your brain. It's in your body. Am I, is, is there something that's driving me to ask the question, tell me more? Or is this a, you know, interesting, but, but kind of, Get in. Just find curiosity and learn to identify that feeling. You can do that in, in less than an hour on any subject you want. And the nice part is, is that your brain is, is organized around, you know, generating happy, you know, fun chemicals when you start down a path that, that, that does excite your curiosity. It, it involves all sorts of different brains, parts of your brain, systems in your brain that we don't have to go into, but, but, um, Curiosity is the antidote to pandemic boredom, exhaustion, and everything else, because curiosity comes with its own energy source. So get curious. That'll lead you to talking to people and trying prototypes and telling your story. But the first step is get curious. Great advice, Bill. Thank you so much. So much to digest here. For the listeners, I recommend you go buy the book and, and dive deeper into all this stuff. So valuable, so helpful. Bill, where can people find you, follow you? Obviously, we said we can find you. You can find the book pretty much anywhere. Uh, but how can people find yeah. you, follow you, et cetera? Well, we, you know, we, we post a lot of stuff on our website for, um, you know, we, we just did uh, six videos on, on, you know, designing your life in the pandemic times. So um, go to designing your dot life, designing your dot life is a like dot com dot life, designing your dot life. Um, that's where we post everything we do, including workshops that we're going to do and stuff in the future. But also um, just lots and lots of reflections now on how do we how do we get through, you know, how do we get through this pretty extraordinary and pretty difficult time for a lot of people? We're just trying to be helpful. There may be some things in there that people 
you know, find that they can use that uh, helps them reframe, you know, their approach to um, getting through this pandemic. Excellent. For the listeners, I have all those links again in the action plan, of course, but I definitely recommend you take action on everything that Bill shared here today. Bill, thanks for making time to come on the show. Once again, it's great to see you again. Jim, it's great to, to be with you. It's, uh, I think you, you're, doing, you're doing a good service in the world and, and generating a lot of useful information for people. And again, you know, it is hard to get that, you know, get that just that little piece of energy that gets you to take the first action. But take one, take to any of the things we've talked about or any of the things that, that Jim recommends. If you, if you take action, a bias to action, it's our mindset, um, you'll be surprised at how much comes back to you in the form of energy, information, and uh, just feeling connected with the world. Excellent. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, Let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app if you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.